Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Jacklin Radio. I'm your host, Eric Jacklin. It is Monday, August 8th, 2022. At least I think it is. And uh, very excited to have a special guest today. Uh, I did his podcast last year or maybe 2020. It was uh, some time ago. But it's uh, Mr. Mark Meinke. He's the host of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast. Mark, thanks so much, man, for coming on Jackman Radio today. Hey, brother, it's been too long. And actually, I think that was all the way back in 2019, because that's when I uh, you were on the Mikey Show podcast. I did about 65 episodes of that before I decided that I don't like juggling and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so I, I iced the Mikey Show podcast and put all my eggs in the Operation Tango Romeo basket. Okay. So, God, was it that long ago? Yeah, man. Jeez. Time, man. That was that was before Stupid 19, before well, Stupid 19 became a thing. To your credit, because we did that comedy episode that people did not realize was satire. So to <laughs> to your credit, um, people thought that your Donald Trump impersonation really was Donald Trump. Like they Just, thought it was the real day. They figured I got the president on the phone. They heard the and audio they, of it and it, so it, was, it was so believable that they actually believed that you had the Sultan on your show. <laughs> yeah, so that's a pretty good compliment to you, I think, that uh, yeah. people thought it really was him. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks to your listeners. It's uh, you know, thing I've been doing professionally since uh, 2015. But with the virus, that kind of put a um, halt on live performances and stuff for quite a while. And, uh, you know, as you can see, my hair has gotten pretty long and I have all this facial hair. So I haven't really done like a big Donald Trump outing in character since uh, the holidays of last year, like December. I got hired for like a, a couple of holiday parties and birthday parties. So I've uh, taken, taken a little break from it, which is never a bad thing. You know? Did you ever do any skits with it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I've uh, filmed a bunch of skits. Um, one that you and your audience would probably enjoy in particular was Donald Trump on ice, where Donald Trump uh, builds his own hockey team and is out there on the ice skating and shooting at uh, targets of Hillary Clinton into a hockey net. Oh my and, God! Uh, you got you got to send that to me. I'll send that to you. Yeah, I'm, I throw it throw it to me on the Instagram or something. I'll share it to the universe. Yeah, I'll send that to you. But yeah, I rented out an ice rink here in New Hampshire for like three hours, and rounded up you know a dozen dozen of my buddies who play hockey, and uh, I was luckily I was able. To, my dad was still around, and my dad was in it with his brother, who were both Newfies from Newfoundland, and they grew up playing hockey. So they played two of the Hanson brothers in the skit. They got, nice. the, they got the wigs and the glasses and the, putting on the foil coach, <laughs> laced them up. So, um, but that, yeah, it's probably the fun, the most fun skit I've done. And then I did one uh, where Trump names his cabinet, where I, I rented a uh, like a big kind of mansion type place here in New Hampshire with a big fireplace and just had Trump talk about his cabinet and shit, which is pretty funny. No, even though it's not uh, Slapshot isn't a Canadian movie, but there's a couple of Canadians in it. Um, even though it's not a Canadian movie, it's actually part of the of the test the the if you want to be a citizen you got to pass uh some trivia of the movie Slapshot, or you're not allowed in damn really i've only seen it maybe once i've just seen it a couple times but i know paul newman's in it well i'm trying to get it at the border like if you don't if you can't uh, answer uh some slap shop trivia and some strange brew trivia yeah. we don't want you we don't want you we don't want you coming here okay the canadians they want a nice wall to keep the Americans out. The joke is that uh, Canada lives below a meth lab. 
above, <laughs> above a meth. You guys live above a, America is a meth lab and America and Canada is yeah, they're in our basement. Yeah. American meth lab. Well, so, we're building a wall. I don't know if you knew that, but it's, uh, it's going to be a nice wall, just like game of Thrones. You know, we all, we all saw that. We thought that's a pretty good idea. So we're going to build us an ice wall because it never thaws out up here. The ice wall is, was a hell of an idea. And we'll get John snow to watch that wall and he'll do a great job. Yeah, we've got a couple so, of buddies out there with a garden hose right now, just building it. Yeah, just getting it, getting it all pressed and ready to go. Yeah. So Mark, um, you know, I know it's been a while since we we chatted and, you know, I did your show, but you know, what, what are you up to? I know that you, you've written a couple of books and you're more, the, the, the more, the better known one is called why not me, the keys to unlock your power and release your potential. But day to day, you know, what are you up to and, and what kind of things are you working on? I know you told me you were in a movie or you're filming stuff for a movie and you've had some cool guests on your show. So what's, what's going on in your world right now? Well, because of the show and my network, that's how I get invited to things like, Hey, want to be in a movie? Uh, it's, be, it's because of the network from the show. So the show is sort of the, the, the center point and then things just kind of branch out from there and creates different opportunities. Um, I've been putting all my eggs in, in the podcast basket. I'm in a financial position where I can do it full time. I retired back in December. So I'm just living off my retirement income. I don't make a dime from the show. Mm. If I ever do make any money from it, it'll just be back to promoting and doing veteran outreach and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm doing this kind of full time. As you know, podcasting is a is a big job, and just um, doing all the prospecting to get the guests on and getting the, them booked. I'm a one man show, so it's a grind. It, uh, it's a grind. It, it, it eats up the hours in a hell of a hurry. People are like, "What do you do with all your time?" I'm like, "I'm busier than I've ever been." Right. Right. Yeah, no, it is, man. And, you know, obviously I'm lucky I have my twin brother, Mike, and we have a lot of the same skills and our network is obviously pretty much the same network and all the people we know, whether it's in the film world, politics, um, you know, mil military people like uh, sports, actors, authors, you know, we all know a lot of the same people, but people don't realize the legwork, man, that goes into putting these together and, and you have an idea about someone you might want to book and you're like, well, you know, how do I get in touch with that person? That could take some research to track down an assistant's email address or, or a way of getting in touch with them. So um, when, when you're booking people for your show, so I mean, your show is essentially, is, is essentially focused on helping uh, veterans recover from trauma and from PTSD. Is that kind of the central idea of your show? Pretty much. Uh, veterans, first responders and their families, the families get left out of the conversation all too often. So the show started from a peer support group as part of my healing journey, like way in the beginning, I was invited out to a peer support group and I'm like, I don't want to do that. That sounds goofy. But, uh, the guy was pretty persistent. So I, I said yes. And it changed my life because it turns out that the injury of PTSD, which I prefer to call PTSI because it is an injury, it's not a disorder. Um, the biggest thing is the disconnection. So they might as well call it PTS disconnection because you're disconnected from who you are, from who you used to be prior to the trauma from community. Cause it's, it's tougher for you to socialize with people, to get along with people. Um, cause you don't understand yourself much less others. Uh, cause everything just gets messed up with, with, um, an operational stress injury. And it's a tough, tough, tough road to hoe 
really tough road, which is why the suicide rate is so incredibly high among people suffering from it, uh, from, from this uh, neurological injury. So the, a properly run peer support group provides that sense of community and connection where you learn like, oh, okay, uh, Dave and Marie and Bob and Lucy, they all have some really similar stories to mine. They get it. Oh, all right. So I am injured because we'll fight it forever. You know, uh, people talk about people milking the system. It's like, well, there might be a couple, but the vast majority of people that are injured never reach out for help. And they live a life of multiple marriages that fall apart, alcoholism, drug abuse, homelessness. Um, until you understand what the hell is going on with you, it, it destroys lives. But it, when you're in a peer support group, which is how this show started, you start to realize kind of like kids um, learning from sex education, you know, from, from some playboys <laughs> that they found in the ditch, you know, and they're talking among each other, selves, giving each other advice. It's, it's unfortunately a little bit like that, only a bit more advanced because we do have science, like a good peer support group. You know, there's, there's good science and, um, and, and we're sharing, hey, what's worked for you? Cause this is what's worked for me. Hey, maybe I'll try that. And, um, is, so the show was a re, an aggregate for resources and also amplified peer support because people would drive two or three hours just to get to our peer support group, which is two hours once every two weeks. So if somebody's going to do a three hour drive across the prairies to get to a, or through the mountains, if they're coming from the other side, well, there's got to be some value here for them. Like they're not doing it for nothing. Right. So why is this so important to them? And once I started to realize the power of peer, of peer support and creating community, I started this show and then it kind of grew from there. Um, Operation Tango Romeo is still that, but it's still born out of peer support, but it's also an aggregate for resources. So I talk to experts all around the world, everybody I can find from every modality of healing that I can find. And I figured, oh, 30, 40 episodes, I'll be done and it'll just sit there and be a resource. <laughs> nope. Um, I don't even know where I'm at, two, 235 episodes or something like that. Wow. Um, and I've barely scratched the surface. There's a ton of, of topics that I have not covered yet. Uh, so I, I just keep, keep going at it. And it's like, well, what have we not talked about? Quite a bit. So there's a lot to know in 235 episodes that doesn't cover it. It's a, it's a big world. It's a big, big world, and I'm an aggregate for all of that so that you don't have to go through what I've gone through to try to find all these resources. I'm putting them all in one place. And yeah. you just scroll, scroll, scroll through the, the show list and pick and choose. Right. You're, it's kind of a centralized clearinghouse for resources and connecting with experts and having conversations that I'm sure a lot of veterans um, you know, might feel like they're having an isolation or not even been able to have, so... That's uh, that's really powerful. So have you found, um, well, let me ask you in Canada, I know you, Canada has national nationalized healthcare. Is there a, a separate, like we have in America, VA system, like veterans hospitals for Canadians, or is it just all under the banner of uh, a national healthcare system? That's a really good question. No, we have a VA as well. Uh, we just throw a C at the end of it. So it's VAC instead of the VA, it's Veterans Affairs Canada or VAC. And like your system, it's, it's bogged down, you know, um, there, 
there's a lot of problems with Veterans Affairs Canada. But if you can get through the paperwork, if you can get through the bureaucracy, if you can get through all the stonewalling, the resources are there. It's just getting to them. That is, uh, the bureaucracy is unbelievable. Yeah. One of the unfortunate, and it almost makes it predatory, um, are our public health systems. When you have an operational stress injury, um, a post-traumatic stress injury, one of the most common um, symptoms is that you're easily overwhelmed. Anxiety can overwhelm you easily, and that anxiety can get, oh, forgive the word, triggered. Um, but that anxiety can get engaged with just some simple paperwork, something that to a healthy mind is like, wow, it's just 10 pages. I just fill it out. No biggie. But to a mind that is injured, they look at that and they just they, they just can't. And and it's really tough. My wife has struggled with this. She's like, what do you mean? Can't. You just do it. Can't. <laughs> can't. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. You know, uh, it, it might as well be a gorilla looking for a fight. I can't. You yeah. know, and um, don't know why. Just can't. And and don't. So my taxes are wildly out of date. <laughs> and uh, something is very, very common in the veteran and first responder community. Um, paperwork is just overwhelming. Don't know why just is. And, um, so when you're asked to go through all this bureaucracy, bureaucracy that even an administrator like my wife looks at it and goes, uh, <laughs> that's a lot. And then you actually dig into the forms and they ask, um, questions that are bizarre and you don't know how to answer them. If a healthy professional administrator doesn't know how to go, to go through these forms, how in the blink is somebody who's injured supposed to go through these forms when they're already yeah. easily overwhelmed. So most people don't, and they don't go into the system and they don't get the help that they need. So a uh, stopgap for that is something called service officers. There's the American Legion and um, in Canada, we have a Royal Canadian Legion similar in, in England in the UK is uh, the British Legion. And, um, they have something called service officers and they help you with the paperwork because of this barrier to entry. But um, without a service officer, I do not know <laughs> how any of this would ever happen. Yeah. So, you know, a, an advocate, someone to help you navigate the bureaucracy and help you through the process basically is what, what that is. Yeah. Somebody that uh, knows what forms to fill out, how to fill them out, uh, how to word them in such a way that you might actually get your claim approved because another part of the predatory part of the system is that it's deny, deny, deny. And my central position in the veteran community, I get all the stories. So I'm an aggregate for all the shit shows and all the good news stories as well. Like I get it all. And um, again and again and again, deny, deny, deny. No, no, no. After three, four, five years of fighting, okay, we'll give you your claim. Hmm. Why didn't you just do that five years ago? Why'd you make me fight for five years? Right. Because it's predatory. Most people give up. Yeah, they get discouraged and just beaten down by the bureaucracy and the system. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I go back and forth on this. I have a lot of personal libertarian views. You know, I'm not a member of the party. I call myself an independent libertarian leanings. But, you know, our, our healthcare system in America is, is a mess, too, and a nightmare. And I really got a front row seat to it. Uh, for real, when my father was dying of cancer, and I was just slapped, I got slapped in the face by it. 
and dealt, dealt with it for, for real for the first time in my life. So I don't really have an answer of what exactly could do. We could do, you know, I'm not, um, you know, married to either way, like totally free market or something with some nationalized healthcare. Um, and I'm sure Canadians are just like Americans and that they have a lot of mixed views of a national uh, healthcare system up there. There's this, um, a lot of myths in the States about what our healthcare system is up here. Uh, the, the truth is that we do have a multi-tier healthcare system or at least two tier. There's all kinds of things that you can pay for and get, um, and, and buck the public system, like a hip replacement, you know, because the States exists, uh, we do medical uh, vacationing all the time. My wife just did it mm. uh, last November. She flew down to Arizona to get a hip replacement because up here, they're like, nah, you're too young for hip replacement. We don't feel like it. You know, we'll, we'll wait till you're at least 60 before we do this for you. She's like, uh, no, it hurts I'm in, now. I'm in pain My quality now. of life now. sucks now. Yeah. So we sold her house <laughs> so that we could afford Jeez. for her to, to, to get uh, a hip replacement. We don't regret it. Yeah. But uh, that's what it took. But uh, you can also do that. Uh, there's a place in Toronto, which is a four-hour flight from where I am. Um, and th- we can also pay for it up here. But the place we found was uh, in Arizona. And, hey, why, why not make a nice trip out of it? Arizona's nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the, the kind of libertarian arguments uh, that Gary Johnson made when I worked on his campaign was kind of having specialized centers for all the specialty medicine that humans need. So yeah, a hip replacement place where you could go that's free to run and be a freestanding enterprise and offer their services. And if it was truly a free market approach, those in theory, those prices would be cheaper. They would, they would fall, you know, over time and and over what was offered to people. Well, it's funny that they call something like a hip replacement elective. It's not elective. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah. like when, when you can't walk, that's yeah. not elective. I'm not electing to this. <laughs> you know, like uh, that is, we're not talking about a boob job here because you're feeling <laughs> a little bit flat chested and, and you're not feeling too good about it. We're talking about the ability to function, the ability yeah. to sleep, the, the the ability to go to your job without being in constant pain. That's not elective. Right. You know, and uh, there has to be better access to that. Um, I, I don't know what the solution is either. Uh, I, I think the states is messed up if you let because you'll if you let a kid die of cancer because they can't afford the treatment well, and they can't yeah. afford the insurance that's fucked up. It is. It's humane and cruel. And um, my family, we had to, we did a GoFundMe. You're essentially online begging strangers for money to help during a health emergency, and uh, it's sad. It was a really sad thing, and it really was the first time um, I really thought pretty pretty deeply about the healthcare system and, you know, priorities. I, you know, make the point we, we prioritized expenditures of trillions of dollars since 9-11 to go all around the world and fight the war on terror and have war with seemingly a bottomless pit of money and funding. So I mean, why, why couldn't we just change our priorities around and kind of focus that more on things like healthcare and infrastructure and helping our veterans? Yeah, for, for the U.S. politics, I'm a little bit conservative leaning but uh, except for when they're talking about public health, they're they're just lying or they're wrong. Like it, you you can absolutely afford it, right? That's <laughs> you know? what I, I say that too, Mark. I say we can we can afford this. Of course you can afford it. it it's not going to bankrupt the country. That's no. just not true. 
No. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you another healthcare story um, that's a little like on the good side. So yeah, if if they call it elective, uh, yeah, it sucks up here. It freaking sucks hard. But if it's life threatening, it doesn't suck. It's bing bang boom, and you're looked after, and it doesn't cost you a dime. You know. Um, so an ex- uh, one example of this is when I was 29 years old, I, uh, had just finished college for the police and security. I thought it was going to be a cop. So like, Hey, you're just a soldier for five years. Uh, maybe being a cop makes like, it makes sense. Well, as I was doing the medical clearance through, they're like, dude, this heart murmur, like, this is not good. I'm like, Oh yeah, I, I know about that. I've, I've I had that when I was in, uh, the infantry in like a tier three unit, you know, like we were in shape and uh, yeah, I was slower than the others and, and working harder, but I made it. They're like, you should be dead. There's no way you should have survived that. Mm. What are you talking about? Well, with this particular uh, uh, mitral valve prolapse, it is so severe that we are concerned about sudden death and heart disease. What? Yeah. You need heart surgery. Like six months ago, we got to get this done now or like, you might not be around <laughs> like you could die any second here. And I'm like, Oh, that's a, that doesn't sound good. So at 29 years old, uh, it cost me zero to have, there was only 10 doctors in the world that could do the particular surgery. That would mean I don't need an artificial valve. One of them happened to be in Toronto, four hour flight from Calgary. Well, I was in Edmonton at the time. doesn't matter. So Alberta healthcare paid for me to fly to Toronto paid for the hostel or whatever I had for a couple of days, paid for the flight. Cause once, once you have your chest cracked open, you know, I didn't have uh, some tube run up my leg. I, my chest was cracked right open and you know, open heart surgery, cracked me open like a can of beans. So I can't carry luggage after that. So my cousin, Sam, they was like, okay, you're the helper. And they flew Sam to Toronto uh, as well to, to pick me up and, and get me home. Uh, this is all paid for. Yeah. It cost me nothing because if I didn't do it, I was going to die in the States. I'd still be paying for that 30 years later (laughs) or or 20 some odd years later, whatever. Never pay it off. Yeah. So there's a disconnect between those things and then there has to be a better way to do it and really put a, a value on human life and, I know this is probably pie in the sky, but eliminate the, the greed factor from it. And it, it, it becoming just such a racket and such a such a for-profit enterprise that what gets lost in the shuffle is, is helping humans live meaningful, dignified lives. I think it's the all or nothing mentality that keeps screwing people up so they can't have a proper conversation on the topic. You know, the, uh, the yeah. free market capitalist crowd, which I believe in free market capitalism, to a limit. Yeah. I think billionaires are bloody gross. Like, I think it's gross. It is obscene. And, 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 and here's my argument for it. Watch Schindler's List. Watch pretty much the last scene. And this is where my head's at. After this amazing guy had done so much and saved so many people, all he could think of is, oh, my God, look at this ring on my hand. Fuck. I could have sold this and saved three more lives. God almighty, look at this car. I could have sold this. I probably could have saved 15 more lives. Look at all the things that I didn't do because I, I hung on to my stuff and put my stuff ahead of human lives. And he was beating himself up over it, right? That, that's where my head's at. Uh, 
how many lives could be saved if, I mean, I don't know what the cap should be, 500 million? Let, let's say it's 500 million. Like, so you can't afford a 200-foot yacht <laughs> and, and, op, and, and, and operate it six months a year. Your oh, third boo, yacht. <laughs> boo, frickin' who? Right. You, you, you know, like, it, 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 well, I want to take away your guns because you don't need them. Oh, okay, how about we take away a 200-foot yacht? Because who in the F needs that? Nobody. You don't need the yacht. You don't need a 500 horsepower car and you don't need 10 cars. Do we take that away too? You don't need them. You don't need a motorcycle that can go 300 kilometers an hour, 200 miles an hour in the States. Um, like you don't need that. So let's take it away. Yeah. You know, like and, where, where do you draw the line? Right. And, and what's hilarious about these billionaires who purport to be self-made, a lot of them it's on government subsidies and government contracts. And, you know, Elon Musk is, the dude's totally propped up by the U.S. federal government, Department of Defense. That's where well, a, a lot of you his... never know what, where, and how palms are getting greased. Well, you're you know. right. They, of course, they are. But when you take away that aspect from a lot of these, you know, billionaires who have a there's a cottage industry of myth making around billionaires and cult of personality. I mean, certainly, you know, Tesla and Musk, they've, they've done a lot of great things, but you can't you know, just sit there and say they just totally did it on their own without any help or backing. Well, however they did it, they did it. And I mean, you look like a, at a guy like uh, Elon Musk. He's actually giving something to humanity. He's probably the most important human being that's ever drawn breath. You know, some people will say that's Christ. I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that. Uh, but as far as giving back and advancing humanity, that's Elon Musk. In in all of human history, I can't come up with another name that would eclipse him. And yet he still has his haters. So, okay, dude's got his, his billions and he reinvests it all into doing stuff. You know, he re reinvested into R&D. I like that. You know, I think he should probably also be reinvesting that into looking after his employees in a premier fashion. You know, not be looking for the cheapest labor all the time. I, I don't know what his labor practices are, but whatever they are, I would hope that uh, they would be the Rolls Royce of labor practices. You know, yeah, could I, afford I, it. I, exactly. Like, that's where that should go. And because um, talking about free market capitalism, what if your company is the company that treats his, your employees 30% better than any other company than, than, than a, the distant second place? Well, why then everybody's going to be trying to avoid the other companies and go to Tesla or SpaceX or whichever one he's got cooking, right? And then that's free market, that's free labor market capitalism, mm. right? Here's the best place there is to mark. We, 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 uh, we believe in employee, like Home Depot, employee owned, you know, or WestJet up here, the smaller of the two national airlines, employee ownership. Um, great. You know, we got better buy-in provides better customer service because everybody feels like they got a little bit of skin in the game. Like they're part of the team because they have a ownership thing. It's like renters versus uh, a homeowner. The, the homeowner tends to take care of the house a little bit better than the renter. And because uh, they care. And if you're to do that and, and that's just normal, then more and more employers keep doing that. Cause why would you work for anybody else? Right. Right. No, that does. It does. It makes sense. Um, so your your military background and, and your experience, you know, being a veteran of the military in Canada, um, 
what was your entry into the military and what branch were you in and, and where did it take you? Army. So when I first decided to join, I thought I wanted to be a medic. Well, I did want to be a medic. And uh, because I'm not a great listener, <laughs> as I was going through the, uh, the process, what I could have sworn that they told me is like, okay, yeah, uh, you're in, uh, you competed for the position and uh, you, you leave February 8th, uh, 1991. I'm like, well, that's great. So I had the going away party. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm going to go be a medic and uh, get to patch them up. And then when it starts getting close to the day, I'm like, geez, I haven't heard from these guys. Uh, you know, this is before email and I didn't have a fax machine. So I uh, just went downtown Edmonton and knocked on the door and just saw the guy. Hey, hey, hey you remember me? Uh, dude, when do I ship out? I haven't heard anything from you guys. And, and like, Oh, no, no, you misunderstood. You competed for the position, but you didn't actually get it. I said, ah, Ooh. well, I'm going. So what else do you got? Because whatever that is, I'll take it. And of course, music to a recruiter's ears. Well, we got the infantry. Do you like camping? Well, yes, I do <laughs> like camping. Well, the infantry's for you. Great, I'll take it. What is it? I have no idea. But I said, yes, it was ready, fire, aim. And I, I went to infantry. So instead of uh, patching people up, uh, I was poking holes in people or training to do that. Um, the exact opposite of what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Different, different end of that situation. Yeah. Well, it's the opposite of who I am as a, mm. a, a, the core of myself as a human being, but I had to learn how to be that killer. Um, didn't like it. Didn't like transitioning into that, but um, did it. And I've been trying to swing back ever since uh, trying to get, but you can't uh, like the Marine Corps says, and uh, everybody says about the army, you can leave the army, but the army doesn't leave you and it doesn't, you know? Um, so that part of me will always be there. And I, I guess it might be handy in an emergency situation. It has come in handy yeah. a time or two in sticky situations, right. but, um, if I could get rid of it, I probably would, but I can't. So was it just akin to being broken down and then turned into a machine by the state, by the military and just trained to, respond and, and have that just built into your psyche and your core? The short answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Especially like in the infantry more than any other trade, unless of course you go with special forces, then it's even more so um, your brain gets rewired. And this is the problem with PTSD. Your brain, it's an actual neurological rewiring of your brain so that the fight flight freeze part is what makes all the decisions for you. It's like thinking with your dick, you know, <laughs> it, it might be a good time, but uh, it's, it's going to lead you down a road. Boy, that's the, ca the end, cause you some problems, right? The end results. Not so pretty Mark. Not so good. Not so good when you're thinking with your dick no. and, and that's what uh, PTSD does. You know, you're, you're thinking with your fists. If you have a problem, kill it. If you have a problem, kill it. If you have a problem, kill it. And this is because of the, neural pathways in your brain because your brain is not fully formed until you're 25 years old pretty mm. much nobody joins the army mm -hmm. <laughs> who, no. uh, that, that late you know uh, the vast majority uh, join at 18 19 20 and um you can still be molded uh, quite a bit oh huge so you don't have a hope your, your neural pathways are getting restructured and when you do things like ambush drills uh ambush left okay and, and in, in an ambush you're gonna die so the, the, all you can do is, um, uh, damage control. So ambush left. Okay. Bad guys hosing us down from the left. The only thing you can do is max aggression, 
hose them back, charge, hope for the best. That's all you can do. So we do this in training again and again and again. Do, 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 on a patrol, ambush left, dump your mag, <laughs> charge, fix bayonets and, and kill whatever's uh, uh, there. Um, ambush right, do it again. Ambush front, do an Australian peel back. Ambush rear, do it again. And it's again and again and again pounded into you, creating these neural pathways that are always there. So it's right. great for an emergency situation because you don't think, you just react. And that's good. Because if you don't do that, you die. If you hesitate, you die. If you freeze, you die. If you run away, you die. And so do your friends. And that's not cool. So the only option is if you have a problem, kill it. Max aggression, charge at the problem. Everything's so when this, a nail and you're a hammer. Oh, yeah. So when most people, they do their three years and get out in the regular force. I was regular force. I did my three. No, I did a little bit extra. I went in the middle of my second contract. I did about five years, then got out. I got out after a, uh, a tour. And um, now welcome to the world. No transition training. No awareness that this neurological change has happened to you. You don't know that if that you react with have a problem, kill it. You don't know that you're an asshole. You don't know that you're aggressive. You don't know that you don't have a whole lot of impulse control. You don't know what PTSD even is or, the, and, or how to spot it if you had it. All you know is, I don't fit. These freaking civvies are weird, man. <laughs> the hell's their problem? I don't get it. And people piss you off all the time because they don't act and talk in a way that you're familiar with. And you don't like it. That's all you know. So a big number of people who get out, get right back in the military within six months. Because you're like, it's, it's weird out there. I don't like it. It's really weird. It's too weird. And uh, yeah, I thought I wanted out of the army, but I'll just remuster, which is a, a Canadian term for changing trades. Um, but I, I, I got to stay in here in this environment where I at least understand what the hell is going on. I don't have no idea what's going on in this weird, weird civilian world, which is why when uh, veterans so often, especially army veterans end up being police, fire, some sort of uniform service um, or truck drivers. Could they become the truck drivers because uh, they just get me away from people. So I don't have to deal with the drama. So mm. I don't have to have people tell me how I've hurt their feelings and pissed them off. Just get, I, I don't want to deal with it. Get me away from them. Uh, or out in the bush as a guide or something like that, you know, but uh, you'll see people in careers that are the epitome of avoidance activities. The whole career is yeah. an avoidance activity. Yeah. Right. And it, that means that they have unresolved issues they don't know any better and that's a big part of where my show comes in to talk to these people to say look here's what's going on so they go oh <laughs> it starts, <laughs> starts clicking yeah click 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 and yeah, yeah. uh okay now what well that's this episode or that's this that episode you know this is or do you keep wrecking your camping trip why yes i did well <laughs> i happen to have an episode specifically for how to not wreck your camping trip that sounds right. useful. Here's some tools that work for me because I hate wrecking the camping trip. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause probably every time you're just, you're going back to your service when you were out in the woods and you're, you're equating it to, 
a military experience, a high pressure, a high tension. You just can't relax on a camping trip. Yeah. Type, exactly type deal. It. Yeah. And it's, un and it's unconscious. You don't know that that's what's happening. Right. Well, you, you sounds like you just kick into gear when you're in that environment and that's what you know. So well, it's a mission, it, right, but, but your, right. but your mind doesn't know that it's a mission, like not consciously. Yeah. But right. your mind is act is treating it like a mission right. without you being aware that that's what you're doing. A recreational activity where you're supposed to just cut loose and let your balls hang out and have fun and relax. <laughs> yeah, that's it's exactly not, right. It, it's a military operation with Jesse Ventura now. <laughs> well, you're, you're treat that was a pretty good Jesse, by the way, but, uh, we, we're, people are, are treating it like it's life or death and it ain't, but there is a solution. So let's, since we're talking about this, I'll get my, I, I have to give the solution yeah. and I have to make you go to my show. So <laughs> a, a solution that's worked for me and has worked for countless other people. Step one is what we just did, which realize, holy fuck, I'm on a mission. I did not realize that that is a handy bit of knowledge. So I am unconsciously on a mission. Great. How do I deal with it? Change the mission. Have a different mission. And for me, that mission is harmony. I bought a motorcycle a few years ago, and it was in Winnipeg, so a couple-hour flight from where I am. And I was going to have my youngest for his first airplane ride ever, fly over there. My buddy picked up the bike for me, jump on the bike, and uh, two- or three-day drive home about uh, 900 miles. And I knew I was going to fuck it up because that's what I do. I get mad because I'm on a mission. I'm setting up the tent and if my boy is not just switched on, I lose my damn mind. And I knew that about myself. So I decided I'm going to have a different mission. I'm not screwing this one up. I don't care if we get home in two days or eight days. Don't care. Don't care about any of it. I don't care how fast the tent goes up. I don't care about any of it. I don't even care if my kid starts acting up and complaining. Don't care. Because my mission is to not screw this one up. My mission is harmony. That was my overarching mission. So because I had a clear mission, I knew how to stay within mission parameters. So if I, if I felt my ire coming up, I felt the anxiety coming up, getting frustrated. Oh, 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 there it is. There's my frustration. I'm falling off mission. Okay. Go for a walk. I'll be back in about five minutes, son. Where are you going? Uh, taking a leak. Just, I'll be back in five minutes. Just stay here. Go, calm down, get my head right, come back, continue without getting worrying about uh, my, my son acting, my, who was like 11 at the time, acting in a very efficient manner. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, it, it says, like, no, I'm here to have a good time with my kid, to, get, to provide good memories yeah. for my kid not to create one more shitty memory because I couldn't keep my poop in a group. And um, it worked. We got through that whole trip. My anger only came up once, but I caught it in, in mid stride, <laughs> stopped and uh, realized, Oh, fallen off mission, get back on mission. Mission is harmony. The mission is to have a good time. It does not matter uh, how productive he is at getting this tent up. And we continued and it was great. And now it's a cherished memory instead of, one more time where I screwed up. Right. Ended up being a great time and you just kind of changed the framing of it and the perspective of it. And that's it. You know, that's an important to do with a lot of things. I mean, I even, I, I look at people who have serious road rage and when I'm out on the road, you know, I try to take that approach too, man. My, my, I'm going down the street to get some 
groceries or some water. You know, this is not this is not the super intense thing that needs to be dialed up to 10, you know. So you got to just remember everyone else is here on the road. They're going about their day. They're dealing with stuff in their lives just like I am. So I kind of keep that approach and have uh, have been really good. I don't think I really I, I don't I don't get aggressive on the road and, and uh, let that spill into that. But, you know, everyone knows people. We have people in our family, friends who you just you live, you, you sit next to them and you see that road rage come through. And it's like, dude. It's not worth getting in an accident over. It's not worth getting into an altercation with someone who might have a gun and getting killed over. You know, it's not it's not uh, life or death here. Just, just relax. And it goes back to my camping scenario. You have to understand what's happening, like what is actually going on internally. What's the process that's okay, like, why are you getting so damn mad? Right. And and the answer to that is that people take it personally. If you get cut off or whatever, they feel like you did that to me. No, they just did it. Yeah. They didn't do it to you. They don't know who you are. It didn't. It, it didn't happen to you. Exactly. Like it. It happened around you. Yeah. But not because of you. It is not personal. It's not Just, a personal slight. An idiot's got to be an idiot, and That's it. they were being an idiot. That's it. It has nothing to do with you. It's don't not let a it personal ruin your insult. Day. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, don't let it ruin your day. Realizing it's not a personal insult. That's the trick. Yeah. So you said you deployed. I, you've told me before you deployed. Was it over to um, Yugoslavia or Bosnia? Or it was one of the, in in Europe, right? Yep, you got it. So the former Yugoslavia was broken down to a few different factions. And when I was uh, I was on the coast, on the left coast, so I was in Croatia. Croatia. Uh, everybody always says uh, Bosnia. I think because they can't pronounce Croatia, but. Uh, I never set foot in Bosnia. I was pretty close to the border a couple of times, but uh, I I covered all of Cro Croatia, like every nook and cranny. And Croatia was the hot spot at the time. Um, it's uh, a spot of genocide. The Canadian government didn't like that term because then, you know, maybe the public would want us to actually do something about it. And the UN didn't like that term, even though that's exactly what it was. So they called it ethnic cleansing. Drove me bonkers. It's uh, that's a pretty gross thing to use a euphemism to diminish what this actually is. It's a straight up genocide, but that conjures up ideas of Hitler and, and whatnot. Well, that's that's what it was like <laughs> entire families getting slaughtered, entire villages getting slaughtered uh, over the Civil War. Like not OK it, when you're when you're shooting kids and lighting them on fire. That's genocide. And uh, and that's what happened. That is what happened. And that is what it was. So um, I, I had one of the crappiest tours imaginable. I was a UN peacekeeper. Uh, people don't understand that the United Nations does not have their own troops. They do not. What it is is there's every member of the United Nations, of which, of course, the U.S. is a, is a member, Canada is a member. Um, the U UN will put out a, requ a request, say, hey, um, the, the former Yugoslavia here has requested peacekeepers. So we're asking all of our UN members to provide some of their soldiers and then we'll throw some blue hats on them and call them peacekeepers. And Canada put up their hand and said, sure, we'll do that. And so did 20 other countries. The States did not, they were not there. And um, not till later, but there was no peacekeeping role for the United States. Um, but we were there, Norway, England, um, Nigeria, which was really weird. But um, yeah, Australians were there. There was us plus 20 other countries in total. And the job 
basically was to stand between two warring factions who really wanted to kill each other and say, no, 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 you don't. Here's the demilitarized zone. If you're in this zone and you got guns, we're going to take your guns from you. Well, try that. Hmm. Try, try just take, asking. Yeah. Yeah. Try, try, try asking, taking guns from people who are terrified for their lives because it's a war and, uh, and the, everybody knows somebody that's been slaughtered. So of course they want to have their guns. Uh, and we're in the middle going, no, no, no guns for you and taking them away. That was the job. And that's what we did. Not a good time. And hmm. so some of the people loved us. Some of the people hated us. Um, and everything in between. But that was the job. And it takes a soldier to take guns away. So if that ever becomes uh, the thing in the States, just so you know, it's not the cops that'll be coming to your no. door because they, they can't. Right. It's, it's going to be military, federal troops. It has to be. Military, yeah. yeah. So and, how long? And, and it, has you... to be, it has to be a platoon, um, a platoon strength, which is about 30 people with heavy weapons showing up at your doorstep uh, so that you just go, oh. All right, I'm not gonna fight. <laughs> so, is that, is that what, yeah. so how long were you in Croatia for? Six months. It's six uh, months. Typical tour, yeah. And I mean, is that what it looked like? Like, were you guys handed down lists of people? Like, we need to keep an eye on these people, and we may even have to go to their homes, or was it simply you were reactionary to possible skirmishes that could happen? I mean, what was what was like the organizing around that? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, basically, the the easier way to look at it is that we had a we had a border and so there's a circle on the map and magically this is the DMZ. This is the demilitarized zone. So we would enforce that border. So we see any kind of buildup for war, any kind of equipment. Uh, we just say, nope, no tanks, no artillery, no, no rifles, nothing, not no even camps. Uh, communication lines in, in the fighting trenches, nothing. And uh, there was a couple of times where we would uh, go, okay, we're not going to fill in that trench because, it, oh, it's an irrigation ditch. No, it's a fighting trench. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. it's an irrigation ditch. But it, it's tough because you, you can't blame people for, you know, like you, you're just looking across the minefield and there's a bunch of people with, with guns outside of the DMV that want to kill you. So, of course, you want to be armed. Yeah. So it, it was just a crappy kind of deal. But we enforced the DMZ, which allowed kids to go to school. It allowed um, where we were, the fighting wasn't. So at least in our mm. little bubble that we created, you were people deterrent. Weren't, pe people weren't dying because yeah. we didn't allow it. Um, that's while I was there anyway. And that's while the Canadians were there. We we're kind of world famous troops. And um, the other ones that are on our level, the Brits, the Norwegians, but not a lot. The French were pretty good, actually. Um, but, but most did not have our ability level. They just don't have it. You know, uh, the average Canadian troop is, I don't know, probably Marine Corps level, you know, as far as training and whatnot, it's a different culture. You know, it's not the hoo kind of culture. Uh, we're not even high and tight anymore, but as far as level of training, it's kind of similar, only we're way more cross training. Uh, we're, we're kind of a light special forces level because we have to be yeah. like doing an American comparison. Now, um, so what you were in is it, was it called a unit or a platoon or? Well, all, so my regiment regiment uh, is the princess Patricia's Canadian light infantry. That, so that's our regiment. 
And uh, there are three regular force infantry regiments in the country. Uh, the Patricias, that was mine, um, which was a privately stood up army from World War I that, uh, that Canada kind of bought, which is kind of cool. Um, so that was my regiment. And our regiment has three battalions, uh, plus an attached reserve battalion. But we have three battalions, a battalion with support staff, roughly 2,000, although it, they, they've been shrinking a lot over the last uh, decade. Um, so that would be 6,000, and that's not even fighting troops. You know, we, we have less than, in this country, regular force infantry fighting troops. Oh, God, uh, 6,003 like 2,500. That's all we got in the whole goddamn country in the mm -hmm. second largest country in the world. We have right. probably 2,500 uh, infantry soldiers, which is why we, we have to have a pretty high level of training, you know, where yeah. everybody can do a little of something and a lot of some other things. Quality over quantity. <laughs> we don't have a choice. Yeah. We're, we're too tiny. Now, now when you were there in Croatia, was this men only or women part of this too? All the above. Um, it was man heavy. I was in the FOBs. So, um, a FOB is a forward operating base and everywhere I was, was I was either at, in the FOB or outside the wire of the FOB, uh, doing sticky patrols and whatnot. Um, so outside the wire, not a lot of women, like very, very few, because it was an infantry thing, you know, it was a combat arms, uh, thing. So the only women we had, we had a mechanic, uh, a medic, a couple of the cooks, maybe. You know, not a lot because, um, and, and there would be a little bit more now, but not a lot more because not a lot of women want to join the infantry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of men want to join the infantry either. Yeah, but, uh, humans, it, it, period. <laughs> yeah, humans, period. But it's um, it's a tough go. There's more women in the infantry now than there's ever now been. Now there is, yeah. yeah. Super rare when I was in. Yeah, and is it like a, just a regular eight-hour day, or is it just a certain amount of shifts that you do, 12 hours, or is it whenever you're done today, you're done? Um, all of the above. When we when we first got there, we had to put up um, the sandbag hotels. So we were living in a bombed-out village uh, in uh, Kieran Slana was the name of the place. It's it's changed the name. I've gone on Google Earth. It's called Kieran Gornier now. In the Krinsko Mora, this beautiful inlet of uh, body uh, water off the Adriatic. Freaking gorgeous, like beautiful place to vacation. Uh, less so when I was there. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't exactly Airbnb when you were there. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, it wasn't. It was a bombed out village. Uh, about 80% plus of the village was rubble. Um, what was left um, uh, standing, uh, the engineers came, cleared it, made sure all the booby traps and unexploded bombs were all gone. And we're like, okay, this looks cozy. I guess we'll call it home. And then um, we would put sandbags two or three levels deep around everything. We'd create bunkers, but also like all of our, um, the kitchen house, uh, all of it. We would put uh, sandbags all over the place. And uh, as many on our internal walls as we thought the structure could handle. So sandbag pandemonium <laughs> it was just everywhere and that's what we did and actually our platoon i swear filled all the sandbags for the entire battalion we we're doing at least a thousand a day it was just sandbag hell um and and that's where we lived because that was the only way we could keep ourselves straight because other tours uh, we didn't have any mortar attacks coming in uh, but lots of other rotations did 
Um, so it was always a threat. I knew a few guys that um, were in the middle of mortar attacks from from that area. So that was when we were doing that, to answer your question, it was 36-hour days. So mm-hmm. 36 hours Jesus. of work straight, about four hours sleep, get back to it. Four hours sleep, get back to it. Um, and then you get three days off a month, but not the first month. It would start kick, sort of kicking in the second month. And you get three days off that were full days off. Like get on the bus, go to the leave center, uh, uh, go wild for three days, get back on the bus yeah. and, uh, and, and survive the hangover. Jeez. So it, it was, it was all or nothing. And when you're digging out and in the sandbags, are you just eating like MRE stuff? Obviously you're not eating great food. Not inside the wire. Uh, we were eating American MREs, Canadian IMPs, which is the same thing, only slightly better. Um, the French, um, uh, meals were fantastic. I tell you, the French know how to eat Jesus Christ. Right. Even, yeah. even their rations were fantastic. And, and the Germans, it was like some form of torture. Uh, we'd be like, Oh no, the German <laughs> rations and the rule of thumb, the longer the name, like Zagra, Fiegen, Blagen, Bergen, Fergen, Bergen. Um, the, the longer the name, the worse it tasted. It is, it's just horrible is it just, shit. is it just dig a hole when you go to shit and piss or did they, is there, did, well, you get to like porta potties a month if you're on the German rations, like, uh, <laughs> and it makes a distinct clunking sound as it, as it hits the granite. Oh man! So, you know, the, the work that you do with with veterans, obviously in your network, you you know a lot of veterans, and I assume from many g- different generations in Canada. Um, so, do you have yes. people who? I know that the number is shrinking, sadly, just simply because of how long ago it was. But like World War II eras era veterans that you've worked with and been in touch with or how, how far back does that go and like what what do those differences look like for veterans who are willing to kind of be open about their experiences and, and talk about it and address some of the challenges that they have from their service well you've just skillfully exposed a soft spot in my show i haven't had any korea vets or uh, i've invited a couple but i haven't had any korea vets or world war ii vets on the show and I'm pretty sure there's no World War One vets alive, um, no. you know. But um, there's quite a few still kicking. I just got to get uh, some of them on the show. But experiences that I've had with people of that vintage, um, when you have PTSD, you cannot be aware of it for 50 years. I was 23 years before I was diagnosed. Uh, we have I have witnessed people from the Korean War show and, and and some from the because most americans don't know but a hell of a lot of canadians fought in vietnam i was going to ask did, you that uh, there's about forty thousand that i know of that okay. uh said hey they're fighting down there and the americans said sure go on down we'll uh we'll accept foreign troops kind of like the french foreign legion yeah, i but didn't know that from us they did so uh piles of canadians went down and served land air and sea and probably the marine corps um served threw on an american flag and, and went and fought and of course quite a few died so forty thousand canadians uh went south to do that um and our population was probably what 21 million or something at the time so that's it was a big number that uh, just voluntarily went hey it looks like you guys need a hand so we'll come on down and we'll give you a hand um of course they have no recognition for for their service yeah, um, that's fascinating I, yeah i honestly was gonna say did canadians fight in vietnam this is really Believe it or not, the first I've ever even kind of thought about this or would even think yet, about it. And I've, I've met some people that, that, uh, that, that did it, but we did it with an American flag on our shoulder. Wow. 
yeah, I, I would I would be really interested to hear some of their stories and experiences. I mean, obviously it was awful and, and terrible, but uh, so are those guys kind of willing to talk about their experiences or are they kind of more well, there, closed there's off some the, the point of my uh, uh, almost a sidebar there was that Vietnam and and Korea veterans have showed up at uh, Veterans Affairs. It's called the uh, the OSI clinic, Operation Stress Injury Clinic, and they've shown up all these years later going, oh, man, I need help. <laughs> so here they are in their 70s and 80s going, oh, this is this this isn't good. And um, and it can take that long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I know it's got to be a very difficult thing to talk about. And, and probably, you know, generation wise, you look back to those guys that came back from World War Two and, and Korea, you know, a lot of them just didn't didn't want to speak about anything. They didn't want to talk about anything they saw or took part in and were ordered to do and was part of their their job over there. So do you feel like over time um, veterans and, and people with uh, PTS are, are more open to talk about it, knowing that there's more resources available? There's been sort of a renaissance over the last five years. Um, I, and I'm, I'm not going to take uh, any credit for being part of that renaissance. I think my timing was just good, but because um, my show is about three years old. But but over the last five years, the conversation's opened right up and it's come a long way because back in the uh, Vietnam or um, Korea or World War II days, um, PTSD was called shell shock, lack of moral fiber, a warrior's heart, all kinds of things. But basically they called you a coward. Hmm. <laughs> and But it's a neurological injury which is why most people kept their mouth shut and said, I don't got a problem. I'm fine. And they crawled into a bottle and stayed there, yes. you know, um, yeah. because that was the thing that you did. And because somehow crawling into a bottle, totally acceptable, you know, uh, everything else, not acceptable. Well, if the bottle's the option and I'm not going to get chastised. Okay. Guess I'm going to be a hardcore drinker. And, uh, and that's what people did. But uh, or it's only it's so recent, just over the last five years, that um, people are more and more, even while they're still in service, they're feeling more and more comfortable to put their hand up. But sad but true, it is still the prevailing thought in most uh, first responders, police, fire, all the EMS and, and soldiers that they better not put their hand up if they want to have a career. They put their hand up, the career's over. Whether that's actually true in their particular unit or not isn't the point. The point is that's the perception. So people don't put their hands up because they value their careers. So they just suffer in silence and go, I'm good. I got this. I'm good. I'm good. Good. Yeah. But they're not good. And they suffer and they die. Yeah. Well, it's it's invaluable work that you do, and, and you should be commended, Mark, for it. I think, I think it's awesome, man. It's uh it's a great thing. And, you know, you're a skilled presenter and, and podcaster. You got, you got the voice, you know, you're good at networking. It's, it's awesome, man. So are you um, still in touch with a lot of the, the people you served with in Croatia? Do you still see them or what, what's that like? Here and there. Um, it's only through a lot of healing that I'm able to really interact with them without being wrecked for like a week because it brings me back, especially a couple of guys of that, uh, um, oh, fuck. That doesn't happen very often. Pardon me. There's a handful of very special people that um, I just love them to bits. And 
we were right in it together, you know, for all of it. And when I'd get together with them, it'd be so wonderful to see them, but they avoid me for the same reason I avoid them. Because yeah. it brings us back and it makes it real stuff that we've blocked out and it makes it real. So, you know, a nice afternoon or, or, or even a full day of golfing with each other. And, uh, then we suffer <laughs> for days yeah. after sometimes, especially if some of the old stories would pop out, uh, stories. My wife has heard the term unspeakable because there's some stories I can't tell. I, 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 not even on my show. I just can't do it. Uh, cause it's truly unspeakable and, but completely true. But every now and then I get together with one of the guys that were there and they tell one of those stories. I go, Oh fuck. <laughs> heavy, heavy, heavy <laughs> Don't you know what unspeakable means? Right. And, uh, we're not supposed to talk about that. Yeah. But, um, then I have to deal with that over the next coming days and remember that that was real. That yeah. is really how horrible things can be. And that's, right? yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly it. It, it is real. And, and I just, I mean, my experiences uh, leading up to the Iraq war in my high school, you know, recruitment was very intense. We had them in our lunch rooms and it was pretty aggressive. And, uh, you know, a lot of my peers signed up for the military and, you know, people were excited about it, you know, we're cheering about it and this is great. And then after they go and they experience war and come back, there really isn't, the fanfare and the, you know, every one couple times a year, we go, you know, thank you. Here's parades, uh, this and that. And then it's just the rest of the year. And um, the veteran is, he's, he's, it's with him every day. And uh, you know, that's, it's, that's one of the things I think about a lot deeply about some of my peers who went to Iraq as 18, 19, 20 year old men and uh, you know, had a rough time. And uh it's a, it's a tough thing. So, you know, I really, I appreciate your willingness to, to talk about it and, and come on here and, and, and be interviewed. You know, it's been, it's been great talking to you, Mark. Well, brother, thanks so much for having me on and give me just another audience to say, Hey, Operation Tango Romeo trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders and their families. Absolutely. Um, the, the more people that, that hear it, even if it's just one or two, you know, um, it saves lives. I get um, private messages all the time saying, yeah, uh, we're alive because of this. Thank you. And, yeah, um, that's, and that's all, deep, all I'm man. doing is, is opening the door. You know, right. I'm, I'm out there doing the digging and then whatever I dig up, I bring to the show and go, here you go. <laughs> right here it is. So where can uh, people listen to the show and, and how can they support your show? Uh, like yourself, the, the major top eight podcast platforms, um, Spotify, Apple's probably the biggest. I think most people go to Apple, like uh, 40% or something like that. Spotify is in second place. Google Podcasts after that. Uh, Streaker, I, I don't know. I get lost after that. Um, but my primary upload upload point is Anchor.fm. So that's where I load everything up. And then it gets to Spotify pretty quickly. I think Spotify is first on the list. And then it dribbles down from there. But Spotify, Anchor, Google, whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back. <laughs> well, guys, check out his show. He's he's doing amazing work. It's it's righteous, and uh, I'm proud to know a guy like you, Mark. And I appreciate you coming on. And uh, don't let me butcher your last name, Menke, Meinke. Second one, Meinke. Mein you got her. Yeah, I thought it. Okay, Mark <laughs> nailed it. Mark Meinke, everybody. And if I can get up to Canada one of these days, Mark, I, I really um, 
I want to get up there. I know you're the opposite of Newfoundland where my dad was from. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I want to get, uh, get up there to scatter his ashes in St. John's Bay where he was born all those years ago in 1955. He never made it back. He left Canada in 55 and moved to Ventura, California as a 10 year old. And then, uh, lived in Ventura, California till 68 and then moved to inner city Boston and he never got a chance to go back to Newfoundland. So my brother and I, it's kind of a, kind of a goal we have. We'd like to get his uh, ashes up there and just scatter them out in the bay. Well, Newfoundland is a beautiful place with beautiful people, but if you want to meet a whole whack load of Newfies, you just go up to Fort McMurray, about uh, nine hours north of where I'm sitting. And really? uh, they're, they're jam packed full of Newfies at, uh, in Fort McMurray. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Yeah, it is actually. They're they're a good salty bunch. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Mark, thanks, man. Thanks for joining me. And uh, everybody watching, check out Mark's show. It's uh, it's essential. He does great work. And uh, appreciate you coming on. And everybody, if you haven't subscribed to this channel, Jackman Radio, what the hell are you doing? Hit that subscribe button. Smash um, it. Smash it. I'm on Twitter uh, at Jackman Radio. And just like Mark said, you can stream my podcast on uh, Spotify. Apple, iTunes, uh, Podbean is where we host it. And uh, we appreciate your support. And if you do want to support this channel, go to patreon.com slash Jackman Radio, become a monthly patron, uh, or send me a tip on Venmo. My ID on there is Senator Jackman 86. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll see you next time.